0: Good morning once again. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 21. If you're new with us, we uh, are working our way through Matthew's Gospel here at Calvary on Sunday morning. And we have come to Matthew chapter 21. And as we have said in the last few weeks, as we come to Matthew 21, we have now entered into the last week of Jesus' life before the cross. The week started with Palm Sunday. The day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem, presenting himself to the nation as Messiah and King. Of course, as we have said, the Jewish leadership rejected him. And so we have now been seeing how Jesus is rejecting them. In fact, here at the end of chapter 21, through the beginning of chapter 22, Jesus gives two parables back to back that essentially pronounce judgment upon the nation for its rejection of him as their Messiah and King. The first parable, of the to the parable of the wicked vine dressers, is an indictment against the nation for not producing the fruits of righteousness. And the second parable, the parable of the wedding feast, is an indictment condemning the Jewish people for not accepting and acting upon God's invitation to be a part of the joyous celebration of the kingdom that Jesus came to bring. So let's get into the first one, Matthew 21, starting in verse 33, the parable of the wicked vine dressers. Jesus said, "Here another parable: There was a certain landowner who planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a tower. He uh, leased it to vine dressers and went into a far country. Now, when vintage time drew near, he sent his servants to the vine dressers that they might receive its fruit. And the vine dressers took the servants, beat one, killed one, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did likewise to them. Then last of all, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the vine-dressers saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. So they took him and cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Let's just stop there. The parable isn't hard to figure out. Uh, The landowner is God, and Israel is the vineyard. Now i want to read you a few scriptures, and I want to read these because I want you to understand we could plug America into these scriptures. It talks about any nation, Israel primarily, but any nation who turns its back on God and begins to live in idolatry and immorality, and the consequence that God will bring upon that nation, those people, for doing that. But in Psalm 80, showing how that Israel is the vineyard, God has spoken of this uh, numerous times in the Old Testament. In Psalm 80, verse 8, The psalmist said, you have brought a vine out of Egypt. You have cast out the nations and planted it. The psalmist speaking of the Lord, of course, how he brought his people out of Egypt like a vine, planted them in a good and choice land, and they should have brought forth good fruit. Why don't you turn to Isaiah 5, because Isaiah 5 is really, I think, no pun intended, the root of what Jesus Christ is actually saying in the parable, all right? Uh, It really, I think he's got Isaiah 5 in mind, verses 1 to 7. Isaiah 5, starting in verse 1. Now I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a rich and fertile hill. He plowed the land, cleared its stones, and planted it with the best vines. In the middle he built a a watchtower and carved a winepress in the nearby rocks. Then he waited for a harvest of sweet grapes, but the grapes that grew were bitter. Now you people of Jerusalem and Judah, you judge between me and my vineyard. What more could I have done for my vineyard that I have not already done? When I expected sweet grapes, why did my vineyard give me bitter grapes? Now let me tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will tear down its hedges and let it be destroyed. I will break down its walls and let the animals trample it. I will make it a wild place where the vines are not pruned and the ground is not hoed, a place overgrown with briars and thorns. I will command the clouds to drop no rain on it. The nation of Israel is a vineyard of the Lord, the Lord of hosts. The people of Judah are his pleasant garden. He expected a crop of justice, but instead he found oppression. He expected to find righteousness, but instead he heard cries of violence. And I'll give you one more, Jeremiah 2, verse 21. But I was the one who planted you, choosing a vine of the purest stock, the very best. How did you grow into this corrupt, wild vine? So God is lamenting how that he took Israel out of Egypt and he planted them in the choicest land. He gave to them all the blessings they needed to bring forth the fruit of righteousness that he might be glorified through his people. So the vineyard is, of course, the nation of Israel. The servants in the parable represent the prophets, which God sent to the nation over many years in their history called the people of Israel away from their idolatry and wickedness back to him so that the nation would bear righteous fruit for his glory. Yet the people didn't repent, but instead they persecuted and killed the prophets he sent to them. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 7. And I read all these, you know, instead of just being brief, because I want you to see how that, as God dealt with Israel for their immorality, I believe he is going to deal with America for its immorality as well. But Jeremiah 7, starting in verse 23, God said, Obey me, and I will be your God. This is at a time when Israel was very steeped in idolatry and all kinds of wicked practices. Obey me, and I will be your God, and you will be my people. Do everything as I say, and all will be well. But my people would not listen to me. They kept doing whatever they wanted, following the stubborn desires of their evil hearts. They went backward instead of forward. From the day your ancestors left Egypt until now, I have continued to send my servants, the prophets, day in and day out. But my people have not listened to me or even tried to hear. They have been stubborn and sinful, even worse than their ancestors. And there in Jeremiah, he proceeds to pronounce judgment upon the nation. Then we read in 2 Chronicles 36, as the author is looking back. In Jeremiah, God's pronouncing future judgment. In 2 Chronicles 36, The author is looking back at the judgment that has come. Here's how he describes it, starting in verse 15. The Lord, the God of their ancestors, repeatedly sent his prophets to warn them, for he had compassion on his people and his temple. But the people mocked these messengers of God and despised their words. They scoffed at the prophets until the Lord's anger could no longer be restrained and nothing could be done. So the Lord brought the king of Babylon against them. The Babylonians killed Judah's young men. They had no pity on the people. God handed, handed all of them over to Nebuchadnezzar. Then his army burned the temple of God, tore down the walls of Jerusalem, burned all the palaces, and completely destroyed everything of value. The few who survived were taken as exiles to Babylon, and they became servants of the king and his sons until the kingdom of Persia came to power. So the message of the Lord spoken through Jeremiah was fulfilled. And yet in this parable that Jesus is giving here in Matthew 21, he goes... A step farther. He says in verse 36, again, speaking of this parable he's using to represent Israel, again, this king sent other servants more than the first, and they did likewise to them, beat them, and persecuted them, and so on. Verse 37, then last of all, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the vine dressers saw the son, they said among themselves, this is the heir, come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. So they took him and cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Of course, this goes beyond the judgment God brought upon the nation of Israel through the Babylonians. This is, of course, a reference to God the Father sending His Son, Jesus Christ, to the nation as a final warning before another, even greater judgment was to come upon them. We know from history it was the judgment upon the nation that took place in 70 AD. Now, hold on to that. We'll talk about that more in a moment because Jesus mentions this judgment again in the second parable we're going to study this morning. But here, God the Father is sending His Son to call the nation to repentance, that they would accept Him as Messiah and begin to bring forth good spiritual fruit. But the nation refused. In fact, in just a couple of days, the nation would cement their rebellion in the grossest, most horrific way possible by killing their own Messiah, the Son of God. The statement, Jesus says, these men said, this is the heir come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance applies primarily to the corrupt leaders of Israel who didn't want to bow to Jesus' authority as the king. Remember, he came presenting himself as the king. On Palm Sunday, he came for the first time in his ministry and openly encouraged them to receive him and worship him as king. That was the day God had set aside, spoken of in Daniel the prophet, a specific day when Jesus would present himself to the nation as king. Palm Sunday, April 6, 32 AD was that day. And if the leaders of the nation would have been godly men, they would have bowed the knee right then, turned their control, because they were controlling the nation, they would have turned their control over to Jesus as the king, would have bowed to his authority, would have bowed to his reign. But they didn't do that. Instead, because of their corrupt greed and everything else, I mean, holding onto the power brought them a lot of money. And so they plotted to kill Jesus instead, so that they might seize the inheritance, quote-unquote. In other words, continue holding on to what rightly belonged to Jesus. Remember in Psalm 2, God the Father says, I will give you the nations as an inheritance, and you will rule over them with a rod of iron. Well, here he comes to the first nation, the people of God, Israel. And they don't even receive him. They reject him. They did not want him to reign over them. I mean, Jesus had been conducting his ministry for three and a half years among them. And certainly he drew many big crowds. You would think from looking at his ministry, oh, everyone was following after him. But what was really going on was they would come to him and ask for a healing or this or be delivered from a demon or something else. And when he then met their need and they got what they needed from him, they left. They didn't really follow him. They didn't really turn their life over to him as king. We see a lot of people like that today. They come to church looking to get something from God. They need a job. They need healing. They need something. Their family's falling apart. Their marriage is crumbling. And I don't care what brings you to church. Praise God. And God in his graciousness often will give you what you need. He'll supply the thing you're looking for. The classic mistake many make is to thank God and then walk away and continue living as the king of their own life. Jesus is the rightful king, not just of Israel, but of all mankind. And we need to bow the knee to his authority now. Someday every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess he is Lord. To the glory of God. But unless you do it right now, in this life, it's not going to benefit you. This is the day of salvation. Now at this point, in classic rabbinic style, the rabbis would lay out a principle, using a parable sometimes, and then they would press it upon their audience or their students to give their opinion or judgment as to what it means or what should be done in the light of it. So verse 41, Jesus asked the Pharisees and chief priests who were, st- who were the ones he was directing this to, therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to these vine dressers, the ones who beat up and killed his servants and then finally his son? Listen to what they say, verse 41. They said to him, <laughs> he will destroy those wicked men miserably and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruits in their seasons. Wow. Something to the effect, by your words you'll be justified, by your words you'll be condemned on the day of judgment. Hey, these men knew what was right. They had just indicted themselves. You know, it's amazing how clearly we see the judgment that somebody else deserves because of their sin, and yet how blind we are to the judgment we deserve because of our sin. All right? Or as my pastor used to like to put it, it's very interesting how terrible my sins look when you're committing them. Now, when I'm committing them, it don't look so bad. I'm very gracious to myself. But when you're committing them, oh, Lord, get them. But verse 42, Jesus said to them, Have you never read the scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. That was a direct quote from Psalm 118, verses 21 and 2, a messianic psalm which prophesies of Messiah's coming to the nation, and yet how the nation would reject him. The cornerstone was the most important part of a stone structure, like the temple. The entire alignment, stability, and symmetry of the building depended on the cornerstone being, listen, perfectly cut and perfectly laid on the foundation. Sometimes a builder would reject a number of stones until the perfect stone, the perfect one, was finally selected. In Psalm 118, the psalmist prophesied that one particular stone with a capital S, a stone that was initially rejected, would wind up becoming the chief corner stone. You see, Jesus, initially rejected by the leaders of the nation of Israel as their Messiah, then turns to the Jews who would accept him and the Gentiles, anyone who would receive him as king, and to them he would become, listen, The cornerstone of a new temple, the temple of the new covenant, the church, right? We are the temple of the living God. And let me tell you this. There is nothing more important to the temple of God, the church, than Jesus Christ. And you have to understand something. A lot of churches don't give Jesus his proper due. Jesus Christ is a cornerstone perfectly cut. What does that mean? He is perfect, sinless. Remember in Daniel 2, he is called the stone not cut with hands. The perfect stone, the one who was virgin born. Do you realize how many churches don't even believe in the virgin birth? Do you realize how many churches don't believe that Jesus Christ is really the Son of God? Who is he? Well, he's a great great teacher, a great moral leader. Oh, give me a break. C.S. Lewis said either he is the Son of God as he claimed to be, or he's a lunatic or a liar. If he's not Lord, he's a lunatic or he's a liar. We have to, as the church of Jesus Christ, understand that he has perfectly cut and must be perfectly placed, not only in the church collectively, but in our lives individually. What do I mean by that? Don't just add Jesus to your life on the periphery somewhere out there, okay? He's got to become the very foundation stone of your entire life, in fact, our entire church. If everything doesn't revolve around him, if everything doesn't depend on him, guess what? We're not really the church that Jesus wants us to be. We can't just add Jesus to the church. He is the cornerstone of the church. We need to give him his proper due, the respect and worship he deserves. Now, Israel is a nation rejected the cornerstone. So what did happen to them? Well, verse 43, Therefore I say to you, Jesus said, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruit of it. Well, that's interesting. God was going to take away from Israel, you know, the glory that was coming, the kingdom and so on. There would no longer be his representatives, a light in the world to shine uh, to the Gentiles about the true and living God. He would take it away from them because of their unbelief and he would give it to a nation bearing the fruit of it. What nation is that? America. Think again, okay? Maybe in the beginning, all right? We're the good guys. Yeah, no, no, uh, it's not America. It's another nation. Peter called the church a holy nation. In fact, he quotes, before he says it, he quotes from this very psalm, Psalm 118. Turn to Peter, 1 Peter 2. Let's read it together. Because Peter, in 1 Peter 2, starting in verse 6, says, Therefore, it is also contained in the Scripture, Behold, I lay us in Zion, a chief cornerstone, elect, precious. And he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. But to those who are disobedient, a stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Peter said, they stumble, being disobedient to the word, to the gospel, to which they also were appointed. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. I'm going to take away from Israel the right of being a light in the world, and I'm going to give it to another nation. A holy nation, Peter says, excuse me, the church, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You see, that was supposed to be the ministry of Israel, to be a light to the Gentiles. Remember when God said that? A light to the Gentiles. Of course, they weren't a light. They became corrupt, idolaters, and so on. And so God replaced them with another light, the church. Jesus said to his church, his disciples, you are the light of the world. Matthew 21, verse 44 and this is what I want you guys, I want you to listen to this verse carefully, because this one applies not only to Israel or to its leaders, but to all mankind. And whoever falls on this stone, capital S, Jesus Christ, will be broken. But on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. See, the choice before the religious leaders of Israel is the choice before all mankind. Here it is. Either we will fall on Jesus and be broken right now, or someday he will fall on us in judgment. See, the Bible says that ever since the fall in the garden, man has been born into this world as a rebel. We have been born into this world as self-willed rebels who do our own thing and live our own lives. And salvation is all about falling upon Jesus. It's all about being broken of your pride, your self-will, your self-effort, and everything that regards self-glory, It's all about falling on him and being broken and saying to him, Lord Jesus, all my life I have lived my own way. I haven't been as bad as many, but I haven't been faithful and loyal to you either. I have been a rebel. I've done my own thing. Uh, I've given you lip service maybe, but I have not really surrendered my whole life to you. I want that to change, Lord. I fall upon you now. I want to be broken of my self-will. I want to turn control of my life over to you as my king. When you do that, you become instantly a child of God. Those that refuse to do that, someday the stone will fall on them in judgment. As somebody has said, Jesus Christ is going to be one of two things that every person who has ever lived. Either a loving Savior or a righteous judge. If you fall right now and are broken before him, he will become your loving Savior. If you live in rebellion against him the rest of your life and die, he will become to you a righteous judge. As the book of Hebrews says, it's a horrible, terrifying thing to fall into the hands of a living God apart from Christ. Well, verses forty-five and six. Now, when the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking of them. Duh. Yeah. <laughs> but when they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitudes because they took him for a prophet. Now, of course, you realize that in the original uh, there were no chapter divisions and verses. So, as Matthew is writing this out, it's one continuing story just continues the flow so jesus goes right into doesn't even give these guys time to rest one two punch uh and starts with verse one of chapter 22 and jesus answered and spoke to them again and by parables and said the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged the marriage for his son and sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding 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 feast kind of the same thing almost okay they were combined and they were not willing to come Again he sent out other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and fatted cattle are killed, and all things are ready. Come to the wedding, or the wedding feast. But they made light of it, went their ways, one to his own farm, another to his business. And the rest seized his servants, treated them spitefully, and killed them. But when the king heard about it, he was furious. He sent out his armies, destroyed those murderers, and burned up their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Therefore go into the highways, and as many as you find, invite to the wedding. So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all whom they found, both bad and good. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see his guests, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. And the king said to his servants, Bind him hand and foot, take him away, and cast him into the outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. This parable consists of two parts, focusing on two groups. First, those who were originally invited to the wedding feast, and then those who were invited later, because the first group refused to come to the wedding feast of the king's son. Now, let me just say this before we look at the first group. In that culture, a wedding feast lasted seven days, and it consisted of food and wine and other festivities. A royal wedding often lasted several weeks and included the best of food, wine, and entertainment. A wedding feast offered, listen to me, a joyful break from the monotony and the hard backbreaking work that characterized life for these folks back then in those days. It's not like we today, okay? We have a lot of opportunities for leisure and recreation and entertainment. We work hard, most of us, five days. We get a weekend off. They, that wasn't like that for them. They worked hard every day of the week. Yes, the Jews took the Sabbath off, but many of them didn't even do that because they were not living for God. And so a wedding feast, wow, was a great opportunity for the whole community to stop working for seven days and to just come together. It was a time of great celebration and joy and merriment. And like I said, a royal wedding feast, look out, all right? That was like the epitome. You could be invited to a royal wedding feast. Wow, the king had unlimited resources. The thing was just incredible. And so the whole idea that a group of people would not only refuse to come to a royal wedding feast, but even violently refuse by killing the king's servants... I'm sure the people listening to Jesus tell this, the Pharisees and chief priests, he immediately grabbed their attention with this one because it's like, who in their right mind would refuse to come to a royal wedding feast? Stand back, guys, you're going to get nailed again, okay? You Pharisees and chief priests. As to the meaning of the parable, the king, of course, is God the Father, and his son is the Lord Jesus Christ. The wedding feast, I believe, simply represents the joy of the kingdom age. The joy of the kingdom age. This first group, invited to the wedding feast, but who refused to come, represents, listen, unbelieving Israel. Unbelieving Israel. And the invitation to this first group falls into two stages in the parable. The first stage of the invitation pictures, first of all, John the Baptist coming, inviting people to come and basically be a part of the kingdom by repenting and the joys of the kingdom and all repenting and all. And then it carried on into when Jesus sent out the twelve apostles remember in, in Matthew 10 he sent them out two by two to preach the kingdom basically the, everything is ready come all right let's enter into the kingdom together this time of great celebration which will be like a like a royal wedding feast was the idea but it says in verse 3 even though a small percentage of Jewish of the Jewish people accepted the invitation most Jews refused it The words, they were not willing. See, the king sent servants out, come on to the wedding feast, but they were not willing, verse 3. That's an understatement, guys. They were so not willing that in just two days they were going to crucify the son, the king's son, about who this whole wedding thing was all about. The second stage of the invitation is found in verses 4 to 6. Again, speaking about God inviting Israel. Jesus said again, he sent out other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and fatted cattle are killed, and all things are ready. Come to the wedding. But they made light of it and went their ways, one to his farm, another to his business. And the rest seized the servants, treated them spitefully, and killed them. This second stage of inviting Israel to come to the Father's wedding feast of his Son characterizes how the gospel went out during the book of Acts period. Most Jews, especially the Jewish leaders, treated the message with contempt. Many other Jews reacted violently, and had many disciples of Jesus killed, including all the apostles except for John. John was the only apostle that died a natural death. The rest of them they killed in some very horrific ways. You remember at one point Saul of Tarsus was one of the main persecutors of Christians during this period, right? In fact, he was pulling people out of their houses to stand trial and had some papers from the high priest to go up to Damascus. There was a Christian group up there. He's going to drag them back to Jerusalem to stand trial because he believed they were a cult. And on the road to Damascus, he met somebody very important in his life, Jesus Christ, who knocks Paul down. And, and Paul comes to faith in Christ at that point. And one of, the, one of the greatest antagonists of the Christian faith became its greatest defender. And Paul went out to preach the gospel. And, but initially, he was one of the guys who was violently opposed to uh, Christianity and persecuted its people and so on. And so what did the king do? Well, he was justifiably angry with Israel, sent his armies, quote unquote, that is uh, Titus Vespasian, the Roman general and the Roman legions, and they destroyed the city of Jerusalem, the temple, and killed many, many Jews, all in 70 AD. That was that greater judgment that was coming that Jesus warned about in the first parable. At that time, the nation basically came to an end. Jews were scattered. The Romans were his armies in the sense that he used them as the instrument to judge Israel. Well, now that Israel was officially set aside by God because of their unbelief, God turned to the second group to invite to the waiting feast of his son, the Gentiles. Now, in the parable, it seems like the second group is only invited after the first group is wiped out. But we know from the book of Acts that the invitation to the Gentiles actually overlapped with God's ongoing invitation to the Jewish people to come and receive their Messiah and uh, be saved. In fact, we know that God opened the door to the Gentiles officially to be saved, to be members of the church in Acts chapter 10. When God sent Peter to the house of Cornelius, who was a Roman centurion, and uh, Cornelius and his family wanted to know the God of Israel personally, so the Holy Spirit sent Peter to the house of Cornelius, Peter preached, and the whole family got saved, including Cornelius. And the door at that point was officially opened to the Gentiles, listen to me, to become part of the kingdom of heaven on earth, The church, at that point, even though Peter, who was sent to open the door to the Gentiles, continued to be the apostle to the Jews primarily. And who does God raise up to be the apostle to the Gentiles? Well, this radical named Saul of Tarsus, who he renames Paul and makes an apostle. And so Paul and his missionary team became the primary instrument that God used to bring the gospel then to the Gentiles all over the known world. And you have to understand something, I bring this all up because... Parables are designed to teach one particular truth or spiritual principle and are not to be understood as an exact representation of something. That's why in verse 2, Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is what? Like. Not exactly like. It's like. A certain king who arranged the marriage for his son. So the ongoing rejection of Israel to the gospel overlapped with the beginning of the invitation of the gospel to the Gentiles, even though in the parable the gospel to the Gentiles seems to be separate from and subsequent to the gospel invitations of the Jews. But it's Like Paul said in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Gentiles. Well, back in Matthew 22, verses 8 and 9, we read, Then he said to his servants, the king, the wedding is ready. But those who were invited were not worthy. therefore, They were not worthy because they didn't believe. They didn't accept the invitation, which implies believing, all right, as we apply it to Christ and what we're going to talk about in a moment. But the king in this parable says, look, look," to his servants, go out. The wedding is ready. But those who were invited were not worthy. Therefore, go into the highways, and as many as you find, invite to the wedding. In other words, go out past the... You know, the first group, which is unbelieving Israel, they refused. Now you guys go out into Gentile territory. In fact, it's the Great Commission, isn't it? Where before Jesus ascended back to the Father, he told his disciples to go into all the world, preach the gospel to everybody, start at Jerusalem, but preach the gospel to all people, baptizing them in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things I have commanded you, and so on. So this is really a fulfillment of the great commission of the gospel be, spread beyond Jerusalem. In fact, Acts chapter 1 verse 8, Jesus, I'll give you power, the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you're going to be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. So the gospel was always intended by God to go out beyond the borders of Israel. And so the parable continues in verse 10, so those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all whom they found, both bad and good. And the waiting hall was filled with guests. Now, I believe this essentially is talking now about the ministry of Christians during the church age to the world. What is the church age? Well, it's the time when the church was first born on the day of Pentecost, all the way through the rapture, when the rapture happens and the church is caught up to meet the Lord in the air. And for 2,000 years, the church has been conducting its ministry. You guys are the church. And as you have gone out into the world, as you have been saved, you've invited all kinds of people to come to church, haven't you? I mean, people you work with, neighbors, family members, and so on. That's our ministry, right? To go out into all the world and invite people to come to Christ. Well, I believe that that's in view here. And um, all these people come and are gathered in the wedding hall, and the hall is filled. What does the wedding hall represent? Well, stay with me. Some of you may have never heard this expression, and it's important, all right? What is the wedding hall? Verse 10. All these people are gathered, you know, good and bad. You know, I think that essentially means that as we have gone out to invite people, we have told them, look, it doesn't matter how bad your life has been lived. God will accept you if you come to Christ. If you're a really good person, that's not going to get you into heaven. So you need to accept Christ as your Lord. So we just invite everybody, don't we? So the hall was filled with people both bad and good. All right. What does the hall represent? Listen to me. I believe it's a reference to what the theologians call the visible church. The visible church, does that mean there's an invisible church? Absolutely. The invisible church is the true body of Christ, spread out throughout the world. True believers, why is it invisible? Because there's nothing people can see. The only way people know we belong to God is by the way we live our lives. But there's nothing, there's no halo over the people of God's heads when we get saved. There's no, God doesn't stamp some kind of a neon sign on our foreheads that blinks saved on and off. Yeah, we let the world know we belong to him by our lives and so on. But we're invisible, aren't we? What is the visible church? Well, that's the church on various corners of towns all throughout America, all throughout the world, really. Okay, So you have the Catholic churches and the Methodist churches and the Baptist churches. In those visible churches, you have a bunch of people, some of them true Christians, which means members of the invisible church. And then you have some people that profess faith in Christ, but have never really received him as Lord and Savior. They go to church. They think they're saved, but God knows their hearts. And I believe that's the basis for what happens next. Verse 11, But when the king came in to see the guests, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. And so he said to him, Friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, Bind him hand and foot, take him away, and cast him into into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. (laughs) Now, you read that at first glance, it seems utterly unfair of the king to do this. First of all, I mean, he sends his servants out. We get the impression, go out in the streets and just invite people to come into the wedding feast for, of my son. So the servants go out to invite everybody in, right? And here's a guy who probably didn't have the money to have a proper wedding garment on. The king just grabs the guy off the street, come on to the wedding. Oh, sure, you know, comes to the wedding feast. He's sitting there and the king comes walking in, goes, how come you don't have a proper wedding garment on? King says, bind him hand and foot, throw him in the outer darkness with there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. We go, are you kidding me? Isn't that a tad unfair for the king to do that? Well, it would be until you realize what was the custom back in those days. It was customary in those days for a, uh, the host of a wedding feast to provide his guests with wedding garments. Because a lot of people were slaves. Uh, a lot of people were very poor. And you didn't want people at the wedding feast feeling uncomfortable and so on. And so the host would provide wedding garments for everybody, especially, listen, at a royal wedding feast, when, of course, it was royal robes that were provided for all the guests. Listen to me. It wasn't that this man didn't own a proper wedding garment. It was that he refused to wear the garment the king had provided. What is Jesus teaching? Well, he's talking about Judgment Day when many people who came to church at the invitation of another Christian and wound up staying, because let's face it, you guys are great. I mean, you know, you're loving, you're kind. People come in here, you know, and they love the fellowship, and the music is great, and, and the preaching is okay, but they, but they, they love you guys, you know, and, and uh, you guys, they, come, they don't come back for me. They come back because of your love and the way you encourage people and so on, and you're there to help them if they have a need. So people wind up staying In many visible churches, many of these folks, though, have not really put on the righteousness of Christ. Why? Because they think they're good enough. They think they're good enough. Why are you going to heaven, you ask people? Because I'm a good person. Okay, why do you think you're a good person? Well, I've never killed anybody. Well, we appreciate that. I never (laughs) killed anybody. I haven't robbed the bank lately, you know. I'm, I'm a good person. Well, that's great. Uh, it's not enough. It's not enough. You know, Saul of Tarsus, before he was Paul the Apostle, was a Pharisee. And he believed that his good works were enough to get him into heaven. After he got saved, he said some things in Philippians chapter 3. I'd like to read to you. So turn there. This is now after Paul is saved. But you have to understand, the Pharisees spent their whole lives doing good works to get into heaven. In Philippians 3, starting in verse 7, Paul said, but what things were gained to me, these I have counted lost for Christ. In other words, all the works I did while well as a Pharisee, thinking they would earn me heaven, I've, I've rejected all that. I, I know it's, I thought they were gain, but they weren't going to get me anywhere, okay? I've counted it all lost for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, all my self-righteous works, and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. Listen and be found in Him. That is how you are made righteous. You put on not just... Yes, you put on Christ's righteousness, but you put on Christ. The whole thing of the book of Ephesians. In Christ. When you receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you are placed in Christ. You are literally clothed with the Savior. You put on His righteousness. Paul said, Not having my own righteousness, which is from the what? The law. Paul thought he could keep the law to earn heaven so a lot of people think today they can keep the ten commandments and earn heaven the pulse about that which i but i rejected that but that which is through faith in christ the righteousness which is from god by faith that's what i realized was going to get me into heaven not my own righteousness but the righteousness of christ now listen to this this is interesting matthew 22 verse 12 So he said to him, the king did, to this guy who was without a wedding garment, Friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? And he was what? Speechless. Why didn't he have a wedding garment? Because he thought he was good enough. He thought he was keeping the law well enough to earn heaven. And when the king confronted him, he really had nothing to say. And it goes along with what Paul said in Romans 3, verse 19. Now, We know that whatever the law says, Paul said, whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be silenced and all the world may become guilty before God. Those people who think they're good enough to get into heaven because they've been a good person, quote unquote, by trying to keep laws and commandments, someday they're going to stand before the king and they're going to stand before him in their own righteousness. And as we're going to see in a moment, God calls that the filthy rags of self-righteousness. They're going to stand before him, and he's going to say to them, Why are you standing in front of me, not clothed with my son's righteousness? Did I not provide the garment? Did I ask you to have the royal wedding garment yourself? Did I not provide it to you freely by faith? How is it that you think you can stand before me now in your own righteousness, and I'm going to let you into heaven? Verse 13, the king said to his servants, bind him hand and foot, take him away, cast him into the outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And of course, it's a reference to the final judgment that all unbelievers are cast into, which is the lake of fire or hell. Now, you know what? There's another parable that Jesus gave that we studied earlier in Matthew 13 that is talking about the very same thing Jesus is talking about here, but it expands it. I want to just look at it together. Turn to Matthew 13. So we bring this to a close, because this gives us a little gives us a little more about what we're talking about. You remember in Matthew 13, Jesus gave seven kingdom parables. One of those was the parable of the wheat and tares. And so after he gives the parable, at one point the disciples come to him and say, "Lord, will you explain that one to us? Okay, we didn't quite get that. There wasn't much they did get before Pentecost, but all right. So the Lord graciously, you know, they were in the house, verse 36, and they came to him and said, "Lord, you know, explain us to us the parable of the tares of the field." Verse 37, he answered and said to them, The field is the world, the good seeds are the sons of the kingdom, but the terrors are the sons of the wicked one. The enemy who sold them is, sowed them into the field is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, the reapers are the angels. Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of this age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend, and those who practice lawlessness and will cast them into the furnace of fire. Hell. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when we studied that passage, we said the devil knows he cannot defeat the church of Jesus Christ through a direct frontal assault. Every time he tries, the church just gets purified and stronger. So if you can't beat him, what? Join him. And the devil then has sowed into the visible church people who are not saved. I'm not saying they're Satan worshipers. I'm not saying that they're they're you know abject sinners. They're just unsaved. They, they think that they're good enough to get into heaven on their own works. And what they do is they dilute the message of the church. You've got churches that are made up almost exclusively of these kinds of people. And that's where you get in the doctrines of Jesus, not really the Son of God, he didn't really rise from the dead, he wasn't virgin born and so on. It's because some churches are populated primarily with religious unbelievers. But God knows their hearts. The firm foundation of the Lord stands having this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. And someday the Lord is going to gather all these people. He's going to separate them, right? Well, he talks about separating them like the sheep from the goats. But in this parable, he talks about unbelievers in the church being tares alongside the true believers who are wheat, And, of course, terrors, being weeds, choke out the life. They water down the message. And someday the Lord, knowing who they are, is going to gather them all. He is going to cast them into the fires of hell. Not that he wants to. It's just that he has to because they have refused to receive the wedding garment, as we talked about, the righteousness of Christ. And those who were truly his will be gathered into his kingdom and will shine forth as the sun forever. Verse 14, For many are called, Jesus said, but few are chosen. Many are called, but few are chosen. In fact, all are being called. For God so loved the entire world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Jesus would not have to perish in hell, but would have eternal life. For God desires for all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth, all men and women. So the invitation has gone out into all the world to be a part of God's coming kingdom. Most of the people of this world refuse to even listen. Do you see it in the parable here? What did the people do? They made light out of it. They went to their farms and to their what? Businesses. It's not that they're overtly evil people per se. They're just too preoccupied with the mundane things of life. They're so preoccupied with time that the devil cheats them out of eternity. That's the danger. There's nothing more important guys than your eternity. Nothing. Is not your that your career, not your business, not anything in this world is worth losing your eternity over. Eternity with Jesus, right? You will have eternity somewhere. I want eternity with Jesus Christ. But say that's part of what the parable's all about. People, a lot of people don't react violently to the gospel where they want to take your head off. Some do. It's just that the majority can't be bothered. They're just too busy with their lives. How sad. Many others do respond, come to church. But wind up going to hell because as we said earlier, they refuse to understand that their good deeds and moral lives will never earn them a place in the kingdom of heaven. They have to be clothed with the righteousness of Christ. Even as God said in Isaiah 64, verse 6, well, Isaiah said on God's behalf, but Isaiah is talking about all of us apart from God's Savior. But we are all like an unclean thing. And all our righteousnesses, what does that mean? Our righteous works are like, listen, filthy rags in the eyes of God. The Hebrew has actually used menstrual cloths, signifying a woman in her period, how the blood was flowing, she was defiled. And God is saying, all of you who try to wrap yourselves in your good works and deeds, you are defiling yourself and you are keeping yourself from the righteousness I want to give, which alone can bring you into my kingdom forever. Even as Paul said to Titus, not by works of righteousness do we get into heaven, our righteousness, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he has saved us through the regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. When you accept Christ as your Lord and Savior, I want to have you turn to one last scripture and we'll close. I want to contrast the filthy robes of self-righteousness with the royal robes, the white robes of Christ righteousness Turn to Revelation 7. Now, of course, the group in view here is tribulation saints. Those people who come to Christ during the tribulation period and are eventually martyred by the Antichrist, by the millions. And John, who was in heaven in a vision, sees these folks. And let's read it. John said, after these things I look, and behold a great multitude, which no one could number, now he's in heaven, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues. Isn't that a blessing? God is no respecter of persons. He told his servants, go out into the highways and invite anyone who will listen. And, of course, people do And will in the tribulation period. People from every tribe, nation, people, tongue, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with what? White robes. Where would they get those white robes from? well, hang on, and with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels stood around the throne, and the elders and the four living creatures, and fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever, Amen. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, Who are these arrayed in white robes, and where do they come from? And John said to him, Sir, you know. I don't know. You know. You tell me. So he said to me, These are the ones who came, who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. That's how you receive the royal wedding garment. You are washed in the blood. of we, we sing, what can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Not my good deeds, not my moral life, not going to church, praying the rosary, uh, doing the stations of the cross like I did when I was a Catholic and all of that. Thinking at one time that was going to earn me points with God? Until I read the scriptures. And God made it very clear. Nothing will wash away my sins except the blood of Jesus. What's the lesson we can take as New Testament Christians from these two parables? Oh, very simply, that God is inviting people to come to him and bear the fruit of righteousness now for his glory and someday enjoy his kingdom forever. But listen to me, guys. That invitation is not going to last forever. Today is the day of salvation. I'm so thankful that in the parable when the king sent out servants to invite people to come and they refused, did he write them off or did he try again? He tried again, didn't he? I don't know how many times he tried in your life. He tried my life a lot of times. And I'm so thankful he didn't give me one chance. And I rejected Christ. As, okay, well, check you off the list. I'm so thankful he kept trying and kept sending people my way. You know, all those goofy people that, you know, at work that... Kept giving you tracks and kept, you know, inviting you to come to church. Oh, I'm going to go to this guy's church just to get him off my back. (laughs) Come to church, heard the gospel, many got saved. I'm so thankful that our God is tenacious. But the invitation is not forever. At one point, if you continue to reject the invitation to come to Jesus and be a part of God's kingdom, He will withdraw the invitation. And all that remains then is judgment. And that breaks God's heart because he does not want to send you to hell. Hell wasn't even made for man. It was made for the devil and his angels. I mean, God sent his son because he loves the world, the people of this world. He wants to see people saved. But people keep slapping God's hand is extended, and they keep slapping his hand away from them. Don't you be one of those who continues to go on in your sin. Don't be one of those who's too busy with your everyday life to worry about your eternity. Don't be one of those who thinks, I'm a good person, I'll get to heaven. I know I will. I know you won't without Christ. Hopefully you've begun to understand that too right now. And come to Jesus, receive his invitation, and you will become a child of God, and he will be to you a loving Savior. If not, he will someday be your righteous judge. And you don't want that. Honestly, you don't. It's a terrible thing to fall into the hands of a living God apart from Christ. So may God give grace to all here today to heed what he is saying. Father, we thank you so much, Lord, that you are a patient God. And Lord Jesus, even at this point where you were just two days away from the cross, you were still giving Israel a chance to repent. Of course, they refused. But Lord, the thief on the cross got another opportunity and he received you. Even hours before his death, Lord, it's not too late until we're dead to receive you as Lord and Savior. And so, Lord, I pray for everybody in this room that, Lord, not one person would leave here today without receiving Jesus as Lord and Savior. And for the rest of us, Lord, you are inviting us each day to bear fruit. You are inviting us each day to come into a deeper relationship, which brings great joy. And, Father, we just pray you give us grace to receive those invitations to go deeper with you, that our lives might bring forth more fruit for your glory. Lord, we ask it all in Jesus' precious name. Amen.